Well, good morning again. A beautiful weekend that we're all enjoying. These last two weekends, I had the privilege of officiating two weddings of young couples in our church. Uh, always a wonderful time of celebrate, celebrating. Yeah, uh, last weekend was uh, Tom and Lauren Reschke, and yesterday, Isaac and Reagan Dow. And uh, yesterday, I was driving to the wedding, and um, as I was making my way, it was in the Jamesville area, I saw a truck on the side of the road. It was a Limp Lizard truck. And if you're familiar with Limp Lizard, they're a local barbecue place. And I happened to know that they were catering the wedding because I had learned that the night before. And so I thought, oh, my goodness, maybe they broke down. So I kind of slowly as I went by them, I rolled down my window. And the guy who was driving says, hey, do you know where Bull Hill Road is? And I could tell he was lost. But I, I, I knew what he really needed. So I answered his question with a question. I said, are you going to the wedding? And he said yeah. I said, well, follow me. I'm going to the wedding. And so he followed me the rest of the way, which actually was a dream come true for me. The idea of a truck full of delicious food, just following me everywhere I go. I almost, I almost thought about just bringing him back to my house. Um, when he asked me the question, where is Bull Hill Road? He was looking for information, but I actually knew more what he really needed. And so I answered, not with information and not with an answer, but with a question. Jesus did that a lot. People would ask him a question, thinking they knew what they needed, but he knew what they really needed. And he answered with a question. And in some ways, he also said, follow me, as he began to give them information about what they really needed. And this morning, we're in Luke chapter 10, and we're going to look at a time where he's asked a question, and he answers with a question. He, the guy who's asking the question thinks he knows what he needs, but Jesus knows what he really needs. How many of you are glad this morning that even though sometimes we think we know what we need, Jesus knows what we really need? In Luke chapter 10, verse 25, it says, Behold, a lawyer, this is not necessarily be a lawyer like we think of lawyers today. This would have been an expert in Jewish law. A lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And when you look at this question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? The problem with the question is right in the middle of it. What shall I do? The lawyer wants to know, how can I earn salvation? What could I do to deserve heaven? How can I live my life so that God owes me the blessings of salvation? And this question is a problem because it goes right against the heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel is not what you can do, but what's been done for you. It's not what I can do to be saved, but it's what Jesus Christ has done to save me. So the question is already wrong, and Jesus answers with a question. He says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And this expert in Jewish law, and he would have been an expert in the Torah, he answers by quoting from Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.18. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all of your strength, with all of your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says to the lawyer, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Jesus basically says, smarty pants, you knew it. Like, you already had the answer. Now you just got to do it. And this is the lawyer's chance to sit down and shut up and not look any more foolish. But human nature, he can't. So he pushes on and he asks another question. And it says, but desiring, oh, I don't have it here. But desiring to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and he asked another question, who is my neighbor? This man wants to justify himself. To justify yourself means to prove that the way that you live is acceptable, 
that, it's, that it works. Uh, so he's wanting to justify in front of this crowd who he is and the choices that he's made. And so he asks this question, who is my neighbor? Is it just Israel? Or is it just the faithful remnant of Israel? Is it just other lawyers, other people who are experts in the law? Surely not everyone. Jesus, where do you draw the line? There's some people who are neighbors. There are some people who are not our neighbors, right? Who is my neighbor? And what he really wants to know in this question is, who do I not have to love? Who is not my neighbor. And Jesus tells this story, and maybe Jesus' most famous story. In verse 30, it says that Jesus replied and said, a man was going from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, this was about an 18-mile windy trip through uh, dangerous places. And it says that a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. That's speaking of the actual elevation. Jerusalem was at like, uh, or Jerusalem was at like 2,600 feet above sea level. And he was going down to 825 feet. They were going through mountains. These mountains were filled with caves and robbers would hide in these caves. This was an infamous road that this man was taking from Jerusalem to Jericho. And it says, he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, also traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. Many of the priests actually at the time lived outside of Jerusalem, and the majority of them lived actually in Jericho. So this priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Now, the priest, if you're familiar with the scriptures, these, are the, these would be religious leaders. These would be from the tribe of Levi. These would be those who served in the temple and made sacrifices. He sees him, and he passes by. The Levite would have been sort of someone who assisted in all sorts of practical manners in the temple courts, cleansing and caring for the sacred courts and the vessels, serving as a gatekeeper, maybe the singer, maybe a musician. Some of these Levites even were responsible to interpret the Torah, sort of a jack of all trades. They both see him, and actually in the Greek it says this, the way Jesus describes what the Levite did is that the Levite didn't just see the man, but the Levite took a closer look walked over and saw him, and they both kept going. And what's so striking here is that the priest and the Levite have just left Jerusalem. They're headed home to Jericho, which means they've just left a place of worshiping God, proclaiming and declaring their love to God and their faithfulness to a faithful God. But on their way home, they have an opportunity to love someone in need, and they pass them by. And we're kind of left with this question, why? Why would they walk by this man? And there's a few possible reasons you know, the Israelites had a lot of ceremonial um, laws about cleanliness, specifically touching things that had bled. Uh, and so it's possible that there was a fear of defilement. If I touch this man who's bloody and dying, it will defile me, and I won't be able to do the work that I'm called to do. I don't know if that's actually a good excuse, because if you remember, they're walking from Jerusalem to Jericho. They're walking away from, and also, actually, in the Mishnah, it says that even a, the, highest, um, the highest law is to save a life. And so it's probably, if it was an excuse that you used, it was a made-up excuse. Maybe they didn't stop because of the danger. They're like, this is a dangerous road. I got to keep moving. If I stop and help this guy, I'll make myself vulnerable. I bet these guys who beat him up are just waiting off to the side for someone to help him so they can jump on me. So maybe he didn't want to endanger himself. It's going to cost me something. Or maybe it was an issue of indifference. You ever have that? This isn't my problem. I don't know this person. This guy should have known better. I mean, he shouldn't be walking down this road alone. Everybody knows. They walk by. 
At this point in the story, when Jesus is right here in the story, everyone who's listening to him tell the story thinks they know what's coming next because there was actually a threefold rhythm in uh, Semitic stories. And the threefold rhythm is they were expecting a third person to come by. They knew the priest didn't do his job, the Levite didn't. And, and many, of, many of the Israelite laymen of that time were unhappy with the clergy. And what they expected Jesus to say next in this story was an average good guy Jewish person came along and did the right thing and was better than the professional clergy and the volunteer leaders. And, and there's the lesson. That's what they expected to say. And then they would have approved of it and they would have applauded and they said, I love that story. But Jesus flips the script, and in verse 33, it says, But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. I wonder if just the word Samaritan caused, like, a murmur, a gasp in the crowd. Because maybe they thought, oh, this story is actually going to end really gruesome, really bad, because there's a Samaritan. The Samaritan's going to finish this guy off. Because the Samaritans and Jewish people, the, the hatred between Judea and Samaria went back over 400 years. And it centered over racial purity because while the Jews had kept their purity during Babylonian captivity, the Samaritans had lost theirs by intermarrying with Assyrians. And so in the Jews' eyes, the Samaritans were compromising mongrels or at least the descendants of compromising people. Also, the Samaritans had built a rival temple on Mount Gerizim only to have it destroyed by the Jews in Maccabean times. This is Luke chapter 10. In Luke chapter 9, James and John, Jesus, two of his followers, they asked the Lord about calling down fire from heaven to destroy some inhospitable Samaritans. There's no love lost between Jewish people and Samaritans. In In Jesus' day, the hatred was ingrained and intense. It was racism. It was socioeconomic. Economically driven, it was driven in every possible way. In fact, the rabbi said, he who eats the bread of a Samaritan is like he who eats swine or pig flesh. The ultimate insult came in a prayer that concluded, do not remember the Cushites, which were like the Cuthites, which was another word for the Samaritans or those who lived in Samaria. Do not remember the Cuthites in the resurrection. It was actual prayer that was prayed. And to this, add to this fact that in that day, Some Jewish travelers had been murdered in Samaria, and the Samaritans had defiled the Jewish temple not long before this by throwing human bones into that. So so I can't, like, overstate this enough. When Jesus introduces the Samaritan, this is a shock. Samaritans are villains, not heroes. Let's see what the Samaritan does. He went to him. He bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Now, this would have been for medicinal purpose. Then he set him on his animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii. Two denarii would have been two days' salary or enough for 24 days of food, or in my case, 12 days of food. But he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back through. And then here's Jesus answering the question with a question. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers. And the lawyer answers, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. There's two things that Jesus does in this story, or I should say there's two ways that he redefines a word that they thought they understood, the lawyer thought he had a grasp on. Because remember, the original question was what? Who is my neighbor? 
And Jesus redefines the word neighbor in this powerful, memorable story. Now, how do we define neighbor? We tend to find neighbor in one of three ways. The first way that we define who our neighbor is is the word commonality. Who are people that we have things in common with, that look like us and live like us and think like us and value the things that we value and make similar choices that we make. People that we have things in common, we root for the same teams, we eat in the same restaurants, we watch the same shows. And we often think of this circle of friends as really these are our neighbors, commonality, right? Another way that we think of friends sometimes is proximity, geography, the people that live on your street, the people that live in your neighborhood, or maybe you expand it to the people who live in your village or your town. I live in Liverpool, so maybe I think of the people, well, I live in Pinegate, so maybe I think of the people who live on my street as my neighbors, the people who live in Pinegate as my neighbors, or maybe it's all of Liverpool. But one of the ways that we think of neighbors is by proximity. And, you know, this commonality, like this is comfortable proximity, this is sort of traditional, but this last one is kind of more modern. Now we think of neighbors as who we are connected with via technology. So our neighbors are people that are our Facebook friends or follow us on Twitter or Instagram. But whatever it is, we tend to identify and, and define neighbors as common, through these three words, commonality, proximity, and technology. And none of those things are bad, but none of them are how Jesus defines neighbor. How does Jesus define neighbor? Jesus defines neighbor by opportunity. Opportunity. The Jewish man had little to nothing in common with the Samaritan. But the moment the opportunity help, to help him came along, the Samaritan realized, this is my neighbor. Brother Bartholomew, an old pastor that I, I knew, he's passed away, he's in heaven now. When he talked about this parable, he said this, the robbers looked at the man and said, what is yours is mine, I'll take it. The priest and the Levite looked at the man and said, what is mine is mine, I'll keep it. But the Samaritan looked at the man and said, what is mine is yours. You can have it. Isn't it a beautiful summary? The robber said, what is yours is mine. I'll take it. The priest and the Levite said, what's mine is mine. I'm going to keep it. But the Samaritan said, what is mine is yours. You can have it. I'm going to give it to you. He saw the opportunity to be a neighbor. And not only was there nothing in common, but as I've already pointed out, this was an enemy. And yet the Samaritan stops. And at great expense to himself, he was on his horse or his donkey or whatever he's riding. Now, this, now the, the Jewish man is on it. He's, he's got to walk the rest of the way. He, he gives of his supplies to care for this man. He pays out of his pocket with the promise to pay more. At great expense to himself because there's the opportunity. He sees this man as his neighbor, even though in the natural he's his enemy. So the question for us this morning is this. For you, who is that person? Who's the person that you would be tempted to walk by and to not see as a neighbor? And this is, I was thinking about this sort of uh, idea of if you can envision yourself, if there's any social issue or any moral issue or any ethical issue that you can envision yourself out protesting about or picketing about, holding a sign, standing out there and giving your voice to a cause, right? Whatever that might be. Everyone has probably a couple things that they might be willing to do that for. Envision yourself doing that. What is your issue? What is your matter? What is your voice going towards, all right? So envision yourself there. Now look across the street at the other people on the other side of the street holding the other signs yelling the other things, saying the other things. Those are the Samaritans in our lives. Those are the people in our lives 
Who are those people? In fact, one of the most telling things is in the end of the story when Jesus says, which one of these three proved to be a neighbor? Do you notice that the lawyer couldn't even spit out the word, the Samaritan? He couldn't even say it. He said, the one who showed mercy. You you know who your Samaritan is? You don't even want to say it. You don't even want to talk about it. And yet we're called when there's opportunity to be neighbors. Paul in Galatians says the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The proof of our love for God, listen to this, the proof of our love for God is not what we do in Jerusalem, which means the proof of our love for God is actually not what we're doing this morning. The fact that you're here, the fact that you were singing, the fact that you're listening, the fact that you're giving, that is not the most tangible proof of your love for God. Because if you leave Jerusalem and on your way to Jericho, where you live, where you work, where you play, you pass by people who need you to be a neighbor, but because you can't see past your own biases and your own preconceived uh, assumptions about why they are the way they are or why they're at where they're at, if you can't see past that, then your worship in Jerusalem was worthless because love for God is summarized by this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And neighbor is defined by anyone you have opportunity to love and to bless. The proof for our love for God is this, our love for those that we have nothing in common with, our love for those who are even our natural enemies. So the first thing Jesus does here is he redefines the word neighbor by opportunity. And then the second thing is a little more nuanced and a little more subtle But Jesus actually uses neighbor in this story as a verb and not just as a noun. When Jesus says to ask that question, who proved to be a neighbor to the man? I know it's translated like a noun, who proved to be a neighbor to the man. But when I studied this, I remember studying this text back in 2019, I I learned that there's a very significant Greek nuance what happens there. And basically what Jesus is saying is not who proved to be a neighbor to this man, but Jesus turns neighbor into a verb. He says, which of the three neighbored the man? Which of the three neighbored the man? Neighbor as a verb, not just a noun. To the lawyer, the neighbor was just a noun, an object, a person to whom you either owe responsibilities or you don't. But to Jesus, the neighbor, the word neighbor is a verb. It's a way of behaving towards people in need that gives life both to them, but also it will give life to you as you neighbor them. And so the question that Jesus would ask us this morning is, are you neighboring others? How do you neighbor others? And what is it costing you to neighbor others? The danger of neighbor only being a noun is that you're gonna spend all of your life trying to answer the same question that this guy asked, who is and who isn't? Who's in and who's out? If neighbor is just a noun for you, everyone's gonna fall into one of those two categories. My neighbor, not my neighbor. I have a responsibility to them. I don't have a responsibility to them. But if neighbor is a verb, then every person that you come across, you say, how do I neighbor them? How do I love and serve them in need? In the kingdom of God, here's what Jesus is teaching us. In the kingdom of God, one does not just simply have neighbors. One acts as a neighbor to all. Now, Practically speaking, I'm going to finish up. Anthony, if you can join me. What does it look like to neighbor people? I want to give you some practical ideas. When we gather even on Sundays like this, and one of the reasons why I, I asked you guys to greet one another, which I know for some of you is the worst minute of your day, uh, and, and, and for others of you, you wish it, the entire service was that. Uh, I understand that. Um, and we're different, and that's fine. But how do we neighbor each other when we come together like this? Well, can I give you some very practical things that we should be doing? You know, we're a growing family. 
We're a growing family. It's increasingly uh, difficult to even, for me as the leader, to even know everyone. But here's some things that you can do if this is your church when you come on Sundays. You can make an effort to introduce yourself. Find people that you don't know and just introduce yourself. You'll be surprised how easy it is to actually just share your name and for them to share their name with you. Ask great questions. Be curious. One of the best things someone can do, I always, tell my, I always taught my girls this growing up. If you want to have friends, don't try to be interesting. Be interested. Totally different. You try to be interesting, that's a lot of pressure on you, and it's all about you. But if you're just an interested, curious person, you're always going to have friends. Because the secret sauce is this, everyone likes talking about themselves. Everyone likes talking about things that they love. So if you're just interested, you're always going to have friends. But on Sunday mornings, ask great questions of people. Here's, here's a big one. Push away from the usual suspects that you gravitate to every Sunday morning and force yourself to interact with other people. Move from friendliness, we're a very friendly church, but move from friendliness to friendship. You know what that requires? It means moving from, hey, so glad you're here. Good to see you, too. Want to get lunch? Let's exchange numbers. Let's stay in touch. In fact, one of the best things you can do to be a neighbor on Sunday mornings is invite people after service to lunch. I know you guys get out early, so maybe for you it's brunch, but invite people to something. Learn people's story. Prefer them over yourself. Bandage their wounds, as he does in the story. Provide ongoing care for them, even if it costs you. Take advantage of smaller opportunities to gather. There's a group of women that meet here on Wednesday nights at 6.30 to 7.30 for a study. It's open. You can come in. You can study. The men get breakfast together once a month. There's all these different opportunities, the tailgate party. These are ways that we can neighbor one another. Now, what does it look like to neighbor people outside of the church? Same stuff. Make the effort to introduce yourself, ask great questions, learn their stories. Here's a big one. Don't just try to convert them. (laughs) Don't just try to get them to church, but love them and serve them where they're at. The first seat you invite your neighbor to should not be a seat in this room. It should be a seat in your house a seat in a coffee shop, a seat in a restaurant. That's what it means to be a neighbor, see needs and meet needs. So in closing, where do we find the motivation to live this way? In John chapter one, the apostle John is writing about Jesus and he uses this metaphor of the word. And I like how it says this in the message. It says that the word became flesh and blood. And I love this phrase, he moved into the neighborhood. The word became flesh. Other translations say that he dwelled amongst us, the incarnation of Jesus. But I like this. He moved into the neighborhood. He left the perfect neighborhood of heaven to come into the very imperfect neighborhood of earth so that we might know who God is. We saw the glory with our own eyes. John is remembering now in hindsight the glory that they saw in Jesus, his healings, his miracles, his teachings, the signs and the wonders, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension to the Father. We saw the glory with our own eyes. It was the one-of-a-kind glory. Everything else in this world tries to offer you glory, but the glory of Jesus is a one-of-a-kind glory, like Father, like Son, generous inside and out, true from start to finish. The word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. Who's the good neighbor in this story? It's the Samaritan, but who's the good neighbor in our story? It's Jesus. Jesus is the good neighbor. He moved into our neighborhood. He's the good neighbor that we all need. See, we were not just half dead on the side of a fictional world. We were full dead in our sins, unaware of our own sinfulness and and, and the state of our lostness. And Jesus saw us there, dead in our sins, and he did not pass us by. 
He wasn't concerned about defiling himself because he knew that he is the Holy One and everything he touches, he makes holy. He wasn't in any way indifferent to our needs. He didn't say, that's not my problem, that's their problem. I mean, we told them the rules, God. They did this to themselves. He wasn't indifferent. He said, this, their problem is my problem and I'm gonna do something about it. He didn't worry about the danger that would come to himself. See, the Good Samaritan helped this half-dead man at tremendous expense to himself. He gave a lot. But what did it cost Jesus to help us in the deadness of our sins? He didn't just give a lot. He gave it all. He gave everything he had. Here's what I want you to hear this morning. When Jesus saw you in your deadness, he didn't pass you by. He didn't walk past you. He stopped. He picked you up. He bandaged your wounds. The, the oil of his presence spilled over your wounds, healing you and restoring you. He took responsibility to bring you to health. He paid the price for your sustenance and your nurturing and your strength. And he still does. He's made the promise like the Samar Samaritan made the promise. Whatever you need, he's going to pay for. He's going to provide because he is the good neighbor. He saved you at incredible cost to himself. And here's what I want to finish with, this simple truth. When you know and believe that Jesus has neighbored you, remember, neighbor a verb, not a noun. When you believe that Jesus has neighbored you, you will neighbor others. You will begin to give and live in a way that makes a difference. Rescuing people from death, bringing them into life by one act of kindness at a time. Let's pray together.